would you pay money for a Netflix-style video streaming service where it only worked on your phone and episodes are only 10 minutes? Yes, this week on Download This Show, understanding Quibi, plus the facial recognition technology founded by an Australian that allows US police forces to work out your face based on publicly available Facebook images. And can you use a video game to make war less torturous and abusive? This is a brand new year of media, culture and technology. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Not just brand new episode, it's a brand new year. Ariel Bogle, uh, technology reporter across the ABC, welcome back. Hi, happy 2020. Does sound weird, doesn't it? It's a third decade of a new century, right? Yes. <laughs> but you said it with so much confidence. I'm like, wow, that's, some, that's a fun fact I'm going to use at dinner parties. <laughs> Alongside Ariel Bogle, uh, the editor of Gizmodo, Tegan Jones, welcome back. I'm assuming everyone else was busy today. <laughs> Why? Why would you assume that? Self-deprecating humour. How <laughs> dare you? You are my favourites. Correct. I do say that every week. Though. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, we are starting off the year with uh, horrifying news about alarming facial recognition apps uh, that are founded by Australians. It's a company called Clearview AI. Interesting story in the New York Times. What exactly is Clearview AI? Well, in this story in the New York Times, it was kind of described as a search engine for faces. So essentially it lets somebody upload a photo into the onto the platform. Once it's there, it can search for public images of that person that might have been scraped by this company, which has scraped millions and millions of photos from the likes of Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Venmo, and display those public pictures for law enforcement for the most part. And it's not publicly available, is it? No. So at the moment, uh, even the website says that it's very much just for law enforcement at the moment. You can apply for it if you're law enforcement, but... Despite that, it hasn't really stopped people really worrying about this, uh, especially because, you know, one of the points that was brought up by um, a police sergeant in the article is that it's great because it can scrape photos that wouldn't be in their police database because mm. maybe that person hasn't been arrested for an offence before. But that's why it's also terrifying because you're in a database, even though you haven't committed a crime before. Yeah, that is an interesting one. I also have, I guess, questions about the fact that if it's publicly available scraped data to then also refuse to make the analysis available, you know, for payment to the public, I have like complicated feelings about because obviously I don't want the functionality to be available to every Tom, Dick and Harry, but at the same time it's it's built on publicly available faces. D like, does anyone else find the, the ethics of that a bit squishy? Well, yeah. the ethics of this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Everything's squishy. Everything's squishy is about this story. I mean, for the let's just take where they got the photos. They did an exercise in scraping, they claim, that has really probably touched everybody, everybody that's ever had any kind of online profile, if what they claim is true, because nobody has verified it, nobody's been inside the company and seen all this data that they claim to have. When we put our photos on Facebook, however many years ago, we probably did not imagine being in a facial recognition database by some obscure New York startup founded by an Australian serving police departments in the United States. Mm. It's not really what we probably imagined for ourselves. It's definitely not. And no. in fact, Facebook, Twitter, Google, they do say in their terms and conditions that scraping is not allowed. 
So this company may have, in fact, broken the terms and conditions of these platforms themselves. That, as a sidebar, will be interesting to see if any of these companies take legal action against Clearview AI. Mm. Um, that would be a really interesting exercise in discovery. So please do it, Facebook. It'll be the one good thing you do this year. <laughs> hey, hey, the year is very young. They might do something else good. I feel obliged to give them the benefit of the doubt, at least for the first episode of the, the year. Tegan, you actually went off and, and you asked the AFP if they were using it, what did they say in your story for Gizmodo? Yeah, so uh, they did say uh, in a very short statement but that they're not using it, but they also said that they wouldn't answer any speculative questions. So I did also ask about whether they were planning on uh, using it, whether they were in talks with Clearview AI, and the only response I got to that was that uh, they basically don't you know, have knowledge of that essentially. So you know, they're, they're not saying anything around that. I also contacted ASIO but haven't heard back from them. But but just because they're not using it now doesn't mean that they're not in talks because there was no response on that. It also doesn't mean that they're not using some other app as yeah, well. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm you sure this I mean? isn't the only thing that does this. That's right. And so, uh, you know, it doesn't rule it out, especially when it has been so successful from what it was saying in that New York Times article. Uh, you know, the the author themselves ran them ran a photo of themselves through uh, the system through a detective that was signed up to the service. And originally it came up with, you know, a bunch of photos, ones that they didn't even had never seen of themselves before so some someone else might have taken it 10 years ago and uploaded it to social media publicly because that that is one thing about it is that they have stipulated that it is only publicly available images that will be scraped so let's say you had a like a public facebook profile and that if you locked it down now if you've already been scraped it's too late but they're in the process of uh being able to let people uh request that their images are deleted if they've privatized later but like you said, if there's no way to know you're on that system because it's not publicly available, like how how would you even know? Like there's so much murkiness around this, uh, especially because they're barely talking to anybody. There has been no independent uh, verification or, or independent uh, like testing of how it even works. There's been nothing. Uh, so it's just so murky and scary. Mm. I mean, too, one other thing we don't know because – that hasn't been publicly verified, their, their facial recognition algorithm is how it does on race. Because as the past few years, we've seen a lot of coverage of the fact that a lot of facial recognition algorithms have racial bias and they misidentify uh, often people of colour. Black people in the United States have been misidentified more often because of the way these data sets have been trained, the types of faces they've been trained on. Often they're worse at women than men. You know, there's a whole host of images within that. But, of course, that's getting into arguing for it to be a better algorithm. Yeah. Um, we probably need to start at the beginning here in Australia and have a discussion about whether we're comfortable with this type of technology full stop because almost every state police force in the country has facial recognition technology right now. They use it right now without much public scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And so we need to have a conversation publicly first. In the US, there's been prosecutions that have gone into effect because of this technology, because of this app, uh, whether it was correct or not, uh, ranging from theft to murder. So, you know, whether that was that person or not isn't the point. There needs to be some verification around this and some legislation around it. 
before it goes too far. Download this show is what you are listening to. You are hearing the voices of Ariel Bogle, technology reporter across the ABC, based out of the ABC Science Unit on Level 4. I don't know why I'm giving that information away. It's not <laughs> helpful. My not, test, no, no, it's the one towards the back. And you, no, never Can you uh, not dox her, please? <laughs> fine. She's Level 6. Uh, and <laughs> alongside uh, Ariel, we have Tegan Jones, the editor of Gizmodo. What level are you on? No? No. no. <laughs> I'm on Level 4. Whatever. Uh, download the show. Mark Fennell is my name. Uh, can you use a game to make people more empathetic? Can you use a game to make people think that, oh, I don't know, that torture is bad? Well, that is part of the gamble at play with the International Committee of the Red Cross, or the ICRC, together with the makers of the huge game Fortnite, because together... They are doing what, Tegan Jones? Yeah, uh, so basically they've partnered up uh, in order to raise awareness about what the Red Cross does in conflict areas. So uh, it's essentially uh, brought in four new sort of uh, modes that people can play, uh, ranging from like buggy races um, to distribute aid to uh, rebuilding infrastructure to, to healing civilians to I think the last one was demining areas. Uh, so as a player, you go and do all of these things that's actually helping people rather than just shooting people um, uh, as per normal in games like Fortnite. So it's really just trying to uh, really yeah, raise awareness uh, around what happens in real world scenarios, but in a game. Right. This isn't the first time this has been done. In fact, there, I can think of at least a dozen different examples of where different times they've tried to use the language of gaming to, to make people more empathetic. I think one of the most, one of the weirdest ones I can remember is somebody reprogrammed a game engine to put you in the shoes of a person in the Twin Towers of 9-11 and you had to make a decision about what you were doing in that situation. I've I mean, th- never heard of that Neither one. Neither have yeah, I. It's a, it's a very, I mean, it's the sort of thing you, obviously, I think if you did it today, the outrage you you would cause would be massive, but I do remember it coming out uh, about mm, 10, 15 years ago. And I remember thinking it's an interesting exercise in playing with culpability and choices and uh, and empathy to an extent as well. And there's been a number of cases where people have tried to, to use games in this way. The thing I'm curious about is does anyone think it actually works? Is it just a good headline for Fortnite uh, or something that makes the ICRC seem, dare I say it, cool with the kids? I guess... While it can seem like a stunt of sort, of course, you know, good publicity for Fortnite, good publicity for the Red Cross. I also don't really see the problem with giving it a shot. Like, Mm. I don't think it's going to hurt anyone or make things worse. So why not talk about this for a bit if a few kids play it and understand a bit more about what the Red Cross does fine, but don't foresee it changing the world for the better. I agree. And I do think that we do need to place importance on where kids are, which is, you know, gaming. It, you know, it, it's something that's talked about so much, but it should be taken seriously. And I do respect an organization for trying to talk to uh, kids of that age in their medium of choice. Like, you know, trying to put an ad on television isn't going to work. It's, you know, an older medium for them. So uh, considering that Fortnite is a place that, you know, kids are meeting and playing, not even so much for the game. It's more for their their social group, right? They're, they're chatting, they're doing things. It's not necessarily 
about the game. It's uh, about them having a platform to meet on. So it's kind of worth remembering that Fortnite is pivoting more away from being a game to more of a platform. They're not the first ones to try and do something different in there. You know, there was that DJ Marshmallow concert and they even, uh, when the new Star Wars movie came out last year, there was a particular scene that was seen for the first time within uh, Fortnite. And then they also had a Q&A with J.J. Abrams. So using a game in a different way is kind of interesting. Mm. I think one of the things I thought was fascinating about it is there's a comment from the Australian head of the ICRC and he, he talks about the game as a way to talk to young people who might consider becoming soldiers or joining the armed forces. And we do know that different militaries around the world advertise recruitment in games. Well, not even just that. They turn up, turn up at gaming conventions and have done for you know, 10 to 15 years. I remember still being a teenager and, and seeing the Australian army at Supernova. So it's definitely not a new concept. And also if you see the new, uh, um, I think particularly the army ads, they feel like a video game. They have mm. that POV um, shot of, you know, people in action. Mm-hmm. So I think there's like a really sort of, um, loose border now between video games and how the armed forces like to present what life is like in the military. That's mm. very true because they've even, uh, I remember last year there was a little bit of controversy around uh, the Australian Army tapping uh, huge gamers in Australia like Muselk to do sponsored content with them as well. So they really are trying to hit that audience. Is that just about that those particular gamers command a huge audience or is the overlap between people that want to watch first person shooters and people that actually might want to go join armed forces. Have they done that little Venn diagram? I think both, but also as the amount of gamers uh, in that teenage bracket especially uh, exponentially grows, there's obviously just going to be a hit rate in general. This is where kids are spending their time, uh, you know, consuming content. It just happens to be in a more active way. Then sure, like throw something at it. There's going to be some in there that will probably be influenced to join up. It's also um, intriguing to consider that now that the military people in the military are so distant from the average Australian. And this is true in the United States as well. Like it's a volunteer army. So it's people that want to join and it's a smaller, smaller sort of subsection of society. Mm. I think a lot of Australians would have no experience or relationship with anybody in the military, would have no idea what it is really like on a war, on a, in a war zone, have no ex- understanding of what it's like to come back from war. You know, it's, it's very distant from us. So I can see how, you know, if you're just playing video games where torture can help you win, that you would start to sort of accept that and just and you would have no real life exposure to the reality. I would also argue as well that it kind of just goes back to that age old thing of, you know, oh, video games makes people more violent because they do violent things, which I, I, I've never believed. And I think that even if you've got people answering surveys going, oh, yeah, like torture's great. Like I really would question whether they would then apply that to real life or have just mm. based off their experiences virtually. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the Red Cross itself has fallen into that trap before and that uh, what they're doing in Fortnite now is kind of making up for what happened in 2011 where they uh, basically (laughs) said that they drew a comparison uh, between video games and war crimes that were committed by uh, virtual military forces and floated the idea that maybe video games should adhere to the Geneva Geneva Convention. The Geneva and Hague Conventions. They they, they backpedaled, but 
it made gamers really angry. There was a huge amount of backlash and a lot of developers that they reached out to to then try and work with in the uh, preceding years wouldn't touch them for a while. So I think some time has passed and, you know, that's kind of faded in the background. But the Red Cross has been just as guilty of, you know, misrepresenting and mislabeling gamers and only now are maybe seeing that that was incorrect. In that sense, a project like this sort of helps both parties, doesn't it? Absolutely. Mm. All right, download this show is what you are listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We have Ariel Bogle, technology reporter from the ABC. I'm not going to tell you what floor she's on. Uh, and we have Tegan Jones from Gizmodo. Mark Fennell is my name. And I feel like we almost need to make a special sting just for the streaming wars now. So <laughs> just to catch you up, you're aware of Netflix and all the catch-up services in Australia, like your iViews and whatnot. Uh, there's Amazon Prime over in the US. There's Hulu. Of course, now we have in Australia and everywhere in the world, Apple TV+, Plus, Disney+. Plus. Just in the last week, <laughs> NBC launched uh, some details about their ser- series Peacock. I don't want to talk about any of that. I want to talk about the one streaming service that I look at and I just go, huh? How are you a thing? And it's called Quibi. Just off the bat, I hate the name. <laughs> <laughs> Deeply firm. So Quibi is short for Quick Bites. Also hate. The content being referred to as bites. Fair enough. Uh, it comes to us from Meg Whitman, uh, who used to be the CEO of uh, Hewlett Packard, was once upon a time considered to be somebody who was going to run for president, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who famously ran uh, DreamWorks and very big, powerful person in Hollywood. Together, their powers have combined to create this weird thing. So, what is it, Tegan Jones? <laughs> Yeah, uh, so basically it's a a mobile-first streaming service uh, where all the content on there will run for about six to ten minutes long, so literally bite-sized episodes of things. Um, I wanted to hate this so much, and I went into all my research going like, no, I hate it, and then reading further into it, God damn it, have they not sucked me in to be a little bit excited? Mostly. So what was it? What was it that sucked you in? I think because um, I just thought at first, like, like what makes this different? There's a million streaming services. And then I saw not only the amount of money that's been poured into it, which I question at first, but then the amount of content creators, the huge names in Hollywood that have been attached to it. Mm. And then some of the tech behind it is kind of interesting as well. So one of the things that was really being lauded about it was that they can be viewed either in landscape or... Or, uh, vertical, which at first I'm like, I hate that. Why would I? Why would I want to watch it vertically? But apparently, there's going to be some shows where if you're watching it in landscape mode, like a normal human, you'll you'll see the episode. Great, good times. But if you then rotate your phone, you'll get a different perspective on the episode, whether it's zooming in on characters' facials, um, mm. or you know, you get more detail. So you're kind of almost getting a different point of view on the show, which I find very interesting from a tech perspective. So I, I want to talk about content in a second, but let's just focus on that function, which I think. Think they call turnstile. Yeah, and I was watching the keynote, which I do not recommend doing because <laughs> keynotes are the most boring thing ever. Um, but basically, it looks to me what they've actually done is they're filming it in ultra wide, mm-hmm. uh, and then as they as they're filming it, they're working out what a a landscape aspect ratio would be, and then also what a a portrait aspect mm-hmm. ratio is, and they're sort of pumping out both versions, and then the it knows what your phone is doing physically, and then it sort of it follows through on delivering that, which I I must say seeing, I think Instagram TV in the last couple of years seeing, which is a a portrait mode form of video, 
There's few and far between examples of really good, interesting uh, IGTV using that portrait mode quite well. But, I mean, IGTV is being so, like, underutilised to the point of they're removing the dedicated button as of this week. So I don't know if it's necessarily, like, a fair comparison when you've got something that's going to have, you know, a billion dollars thrown behind it and have these incredible directors and content producers behind it. I only bring it up because I'm interested in seeing somebody actually do it well more than anything. The ABC actually had a show last year that was... content. Yeah, it was filmed for Vertical and it really was, you know showing people live streaming their lives and things like that. So it really worked for the format. It was built, you know, specifically for it. I was also intrigued by the tech side of this. And I do think there is a lot of room for creativity if you are going to stream directly to people's phones. Um, There was also, I mean, speaking of big names, Steven Spielberg will be making something for it. I think it's called After Dark. And you'll only be able to watch it after dark. The phone mm. will sort of have a countdown until you're allowed to watch it and then it'll expire at daybreak. So cool. Is that kind of cool, like, little ideas you could do around that that make this more intriguing? And as um, Tegan said, like, Disney's backing it, Alibaba's backing it. Like, there's some big money behind it that does not guarantee it will work. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is interesting to see, I mean, just Disney just launched its own streaming platform as we discussed on the show last year. So it's intriguing to see them throw money around in this space. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I was keen to talk about it, because I mean, it's, it's not going to launch in the US until April 6th. So there's, it's a while away and we have no idea if they're going to go global yet at this stage. The, the reason I thought it was interesting is the fact that we have like every large media company, everyone in the US has launched a streaming service so they can own their relationship with their customer. But this was the one which seemed, to be honest, the riskiest because they don't have the big back. Like there's lots of big names attached to it, but it's not big. It's not a big corporation behind it, like a Walt Disney or a Comcast or something like that. And you won't have the brand recognition. I mean, all the coverage of Disney was just because it had the original Aladdin on it or whatever. Yeah, a much better version. Fight me. Um, So, I mean, let's talk about content then. I mean, you mentioned After Dark, I think, from Steven Spielberg, which is a a particularly interesting, potentially gimmicky, who knows, and we'll see how it plays out. But are there other pieces of content? Because they've, they've started unveiling some ideas. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is is uh, not just quality but quantity as well. So I think <laughs> 175 shows have been announced for it, which is more than pretty much any streaming service has launched with uh, before. But you've got the likes of Guillermo del Toro, who's going to be doing a zombie show for it, Sam Raimi, uh, Ridley Scott, and then big-named actors as well, like Liam Hensworth and Sophie Turner, Naomi Watts, and way bigger again. So it's it's super interesting. And and what I kind of see it as is, you know, it kind of seems like it's come out of nowhere. Like we go from half-an-hour shows and hour-long shows to six to ten minutes. Who would watch that? But I think that's discounting the fact that over the last sort of five to ten years, the surge of uh, online shows that just live online that usually are those five to ten-minute long episodes have gotten really big Mm. um, as a subculture. So I really feel like this is the next iteration of that. Um, I also think that some of the big players might actually – be getting worried because I mean Netflix has started rolling out its uh, cheaper plans for mobile in the mm. likes of India and will probably roll out uh, to other markets and they really started talking about it again after Quibi was announced so I really feel like they're feeling a little bit threatened in that space as well. I'm also I mean it just when I was reading about Quibi also just made me think about how little innovation there's been in this space yeah. from the other guys like Netflix app still sucks to this day. Really? In my, well, well you're like the it, mobile app? Yeah, if when I try well 
Maybe I have this particular problem. <laughs> no, but I've this seen other like people. This is like the time I tried Apple TV and I was the only guy that couldn't get to work on a laptop. <laughs> no, no, no. I've definitely heard other people talk about how, say, if you download content before a flight, like sometimes it doesn't work in the app when you try oh, and watch that it. that is true. Mm-hmm. I, okay, I'm glad it's not just me. Yes. Oh. So this is a problem. I mean, it's they've really done very little with their app. It's mm. just basically a little you know, smaller version of the desktop or the one that you can put up on your TV screen. I'm kind of surprised that they haven't seized the moment a bit, but maybe we'll see something. I think they've been resting on their laurels a lot. Like we're Netflix. You're going to watch us anyway. What are you going to do about Uh, it? Well, you know what? Like people are doing stuff about it, so they might need to actually up their game. I think there is innovation that Netflix have put into their television interface. Like they've started, um, they've started auto playing kind of promos. And I think what my understanding is the reason they've started doing that is because of, um, overwhelming choice syndrome, mm-hmm. which is not a real syndrome, but I'm going to imagine that it is. I love it. Which is the thing where you open up Netflix and you have no idea what to watch. I think they've started to play promos I as you launch in. I hate it though. Like I hate having autoplay promos. It annoys me so much. Well, it's interesting. Well, um, Peacock, which is the one from NBC, they when you launch onto that in the US, when it launches, it will be playing TV from the moment it starts. No, thank you. No, yeah. please. No, please. Trying to replicate like TV, TV. <laughs> yeah. No. no, I mean, I agree. I mean, of course, like Netflix is, is you know, changing discoverability on the app. It's trying to push people into content by pre-playing, as you mentioned. But they haven't done anything with the functionality of the app. Mm. There's nothing made for mobile. I mean, even the... Um, Gosh, I'm mentally blanking on the... Um, <laughs> Welcome to my world. Black Mirror. What's the Black Mirror interactive episode? Oh, Bandersnatch. Yeah. Bandersnatch. That didn't really have anything spe- like you could have done something really interesting with that on mobile True. if you'd invested in it yeah it was choose your own adventure which as proved by the fact that they were sued by choose your own adventure <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, can i just ask as well with that peacock thing i wonder if that's going to bring up anything regarding skewing metrics as well like oh well this show has been watched like this many million times like you autoplayed it like yeah i'm sure well yeah. actually interestingly this yeah. week uh netflix put out a stat saying that the witcher was their most watched debut ever mm-hmm. What they didn't like advertise in that moment is they suddenly they had changed the definition of watched. It used to be uh, Netflix didn't count something as watched unless you had watched 70, uh, 70% of it. Mm-hmm. They've changed that definition to if you've only watched two minutes oh, of come it. On. Which I think is criminal <laughs> yeah. that they've tried to get away with that. Now, one of the other distinctive things is uh, we are now seeing an infiltration of ad supported uh, and uh, Peacock, uh, which I, I don't see Peacock ever coming to Australia, by the way. That's I think it's it'll NBC, be, yeah. like yeah. yeah. But uh, Quibi will also have two tiers: one which is a uh, a four ninety nine US, obviously with ads, and then a seventy ninety nine without ads. The reason I bring up ads, even though uh, we're in Australia, is because one of their cells, and I think it's a very pointed comment about really directed at YouTube, is that they they're selling Quibi as a safe space to run ads in. Basically saying your your thirty second pre roll commercial is not going to be played against some weird alt right flat earther crazy person. Right? That's probably why Disney is interested, to be honest. Oh, the reason yeah. why you know save content that only works if you get the numbers. Advertisers mm. are not going to stop advertising on YouTube as long as it keeps you know completely outgunning everybody else in terms of viewer numbers. I'm actually I would be very curious to know YouTube's reaction to something like Quibi because I'm sure they'd be like it's small it'll numbers the five. But it strikes me that 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 turnstile functionality is something YouTube should have done a while ago. 
Yeah, potentially. I mean, the other benefit that YouTube has is the user-generated content. Yeah. People want to make content for YouTube. There's still that ecosystem. Things like Quibi, which are so close shop. I mean, you can only get on that if you have five Hollywood agents and a great huge budget. Totally. I mean, it's pretty distinct still. It is telling now that you can't launch one of these things without Steven Spielberg, Oprah and Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> and actually, Reese Witherspoon's all over this one too. And Reese Witherspoon mm. was one of the faces of Apple TV. Plus, she's had, had shows on uh, HBO. I'm like, more power to her as a businesswoman. But at the same time, I'm like, they, it really feels like the only way to launch one of these things now is with 14 Oscars under your belt. Absolutely. And I find it really interesting, back to your point in terms of uh, vertical viewing, that it really seems like it's trying to tap into... The, the trust uh, that uh, that content creators, like regular content creators, I'm not even talking about stars that say your regular YouTubers or whoever uh, or on Instagram that have built an audience through seeming authentic and doing that selfie view mm. uh, vertically and they've built that trust and they're taking that but taking it to like a really big business format. It's like we can film stuff in this way and maybe replicate that sort of feeling of trust that you get from just regular everyday content creators that have gotten big on YouTube or social. We'll see how it all plays out. That is all we have time for on the return of Down with the Show. I don't know why. Please don't do that again. Yeah, I just became like Ian McKellen, <laughs> the return of Down with the Show for 2020. It is a pleasure to be back. Tegan Jones, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for letting me in the building. <laughs> You are very welcome. Uh, Ariel Bogle, thank you for coming back on Download This Show. Thanks, Mark. And with that, I shall leave you. We'll catch you next week with a brand new episode of Download This Show.